Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Introduce our first guest on tonight's episode. He is a pitcher in the Orioles minor league system, the right-hander who spent the 2022 season between the Aberdeen Ironbirds and Bowie Bay Sox. He had a very successful campaign and was named our co-winner of Pitcher of the Year alongside Ryan Watson. He is Justin Armbruster. Justin, great to have you on. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Good to have you here. And I'll just start with this question, which is you obviously had a very successful 2022 season. What areas do you think you did particularly well in and where do you feel like you need at the same time to continue improving? Um, I would say the areas I did well in was kind of attacking the zone. Um, I was told during spring training, don't be afraid, no matter what level you go to, just use your stuff and attack the zone and really kind of get hitters on the edge. Um, Because if I'm able to attack the zone early, it puts them on edge and then they take more of a defensive swing rather than an offensive swing. Um, in the meantime, though, I feel like I can do a better job of bringing more weapons to lefties. I have the cutter, I have the slider, but I don't really have a changeup that currently plays well to a lefty. So in that area, I'm trying to work on developing something that I'll hopefully play more to a lefty um, and then obviously play at higher levels. We often hear, especially this year with the bigger emphasis and more people watching you know, prospects in minor league baseball, um, Aberdeen to Bowie jump and the difference in the ballparks at Aberdeen and Bowie was a big area of focus. I think a lot more people started noticing this year, at least Aberdeen, much more pitcher friendly Bowie, maybe not so much, but a lot of your numbers are actually much better when you got to Bowie. Um, what's it like to pitch in those two parks and what adjustments did you make to be successful at the double A level? Well, I might be the outlier because I gave up short home runs in both parks. I think I have the shortest home run from the last year in Aberdeen and maybe in Bowie. I gave up wall scrapers at all four corners at both stadiums. But I mean, kind of like what I said, if you're just, I mean, if I'm just able to attack the zone and get hitters off what their game plan is and don't let them wait for a hitter's count and a 3-1 or a 2-0 or even a 3-2, um, it just kind of helps them take more of a defensive swing and then they're not kind of ready for what's coming out of my hand and kind of being able to throw more than one pitch in every count allows me to then like keep the hitters on the defensive and keep those home runs down in such a small park like Bowie is. 
Yeah, I was like, do you really notice that at Aberdeen, especially? Because we had Daryl Hernandez on last week, the week before, and he was telling us, you know, the issues with the batter's eye and just it seems like balls that get hit extremely hard just kind of like flutter out into the outfield. That um, is, yeah, that is definitely true. I mean, you try, you hit a ball on the Aberdeen gap, it's got to go a long ways to get out. I mean, there were some homers that I gave up in Aberdeen that I was like, okay, maybe he got that, maybe he didn't. But then there was other balls where I was like, okay, he really got that one. It's a fly out to the warning track. It's like, okay, how does that one not go out? So the narrative is definitely true that the ball does not fly as well as Aberdeen as it does in Bowie. But, I mean, if you can attack hitters and keep the ball down or move it around a little bit, hitting's a hard, hitting is hard, no matter where you are. Yeah, I don't envy what they have to do up there, especially as the – the pitchers in general just seem to get better and better every single year nowadays. Um, it feels like a lot of the focus in 2022 was how much your secondaries improved. Was there a particular pitch or pitches that you focused on? Um, I would say the at the beginning in spring training, it was more just developing the slider and getting more sweep. Um, I had a short slider in college. It played okay. It played off my fastball. But trying to develop more sweep, um, to be able to run the ball off the plate to a righty and then under the hands of a lefty. Um, but then kind of middle of the season, I kind of started toying with stuff as we do as we get into July and August and the dog days of the summer. And somebody came up to me and was like, hey, do you, have you ever tried a cutter? And I was like, no, like I've never tried it. Um, but I'm open to try it. And it actually worked out and I was able to implement it into the arsenal um, kind of in the middle of the year. So kind of adding two pitches that run away from a righty um, allows me to throw my fastball up in the zone more because then those pitches play off of it. So one game in particular um, I want to go back to, you had a chance to go up against John Carlos Stanton, who was rehabbing um, for Somerset, the Yankees AA affiliate. You kept him hitless and struck him out swinging twice. Yeah. What is that experience like for you as a first-year pitcher trying to find your way in AA? Um, it's a, it's definitely an experience I'll never forget. I mean, I remember warming up and seeing him for the first time in person. And I was like, I mean, I'm a pretty big guy myself. And I was like, this dude is a flat out monster. Like he is huge. I don't know if you guys have ever stood up next to him in person, but he is huge. So then just facing him. I mean, I talked to my pitching coach the day of, cause nobody told me that he was coming before I got there that day. So they kind of just told me, like, don't face him or don't treat him like any other hitter. Just do what you do and attack. Um, and I was able to keep him off balance. I remember I went behind 2-0 in that first AB and kind of just took a deep breath and was like, okay, it's fine. It's just another hitter like they told you. And I was able to have some success. But it's definitely an experience that I'll never forget throughout my entire baseball career. Well, hopefully uh, you get that experience again at Camden Yards in the near future. But uh, you were one of a few pitchers who started in Aberdeen, generated some hype, and then you were able to move up to Double A and were part of this group of pitching prospects that we kind of felt like went overlooked. A lot of you guys that started in Aberdeen were getting overlooked, but you made a name for yourself this year. And a lot of you guys, yourself, Noah DeNoyer, Carlos Tavera, so many guys, you guys are pretty much firmly on the map now for 2023. What kind of secret sauce does Forrest Herman cook down there in Aberdeen? To help you guys that Forrest Herman is a pitching wizard like if you ask him to try to develop a pitch with you he has more than I want to say 20 different ways he can do it but that man is a straight-up wizard when it comes to working with track man working with us and developing pitches I mean he just knows how to develop the MLB pitches that the Orioles want and 
it plays. I mean, everything that he taught me this in Aberdeen this past year has played, and I'm continuing to work with him just because I know how good he is at his job. But he's definitely got some magical sauce in those fingers, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm always curious, especially with the coaches in the system, because we always hear from players and, you know, when the front office talks about the minor league system, how there's – everybody's working towards the same goal and it's not like, all right, you're done at high a you're done with, you know, Forrest Herman. Now you're the next pitcher coach's, you know, responsibility. And he, you know, some organizations you hear stories of, well, all right, that guy was teaching you this way. Well, I'm going to teach you my way. Now everybody seems to be on that same goal, but in Aberdeen, it seems like there are a lot of younger coaches, first year head coach manager and Roberto Mercado. What was, what was that atmosphere that, that uh, the, the clubhouse like in Aberdeen specifically when you were there? It was awesome. I mean, everybody's pushing towards the same goal. We have our motto, rising tide, uh, raises all ships. Um, so everybody's pushing towards that same goal is to get better. But having a first-year manager in the clubhouse was honestly a really cool experience just because he's getting his feet wet just as me and Carlos Tavera are. As it was our first year as well. Um, so kind of just going off of it and bouncing ideas off one another really made the clubhouse a fun place to be. I mean, I, would, I remember showing up at 2 o'clock there, just hanging out, eating lunch getting to know people, kind of trying to get my feet wet and feel out how pro ball really was. So having a lot of young guys in the clubhouse, both coaches and a manager and then players as well, um, we were all really able to work kind of as a team, um, bounce ideas off one another, see what clicks for what people, and then it led to a lot of success in the Aberdeen clubhouse and then led them to the uh, postseason. So when you uh, got to Bowie, you had a chance to work with Josh Conway, who seems like some someone who's the very first person to jump in and fight for his guys. What is it like working with him, and how was he able to help you develop last season? Working with Conway was really cool because he took relationships first. Um, that first week I was there, he kind of just let me do what I was doing in Aberdeen um, to see kind of how I worked. And then once we kind of developed that relationship and got to know one another, then we sat down and was like, okay, here's what we can do better. Here's what we maybe do not so well that is the low-hanging fruit. But then also, here's what you do really well, and here's what you should continue to do. So being able to develop that relationship first with Conway was really nice because then it led to even stronger relationship once we got into the nitty-gritty of how to pitch. Love that. Um, our favorite scouting reports come from you guys, and we are able to get players on the show. Uh, and so we always get the guys, you know, that um, – who, who I can't remember who was on, but talked about, you know, Jake Prezina having one of the, the nastiest pitches in the organization. And that being a guy that, you know, national outlets just don't talk about. So if you were forced to stand in the box against one of your pitching teammates, someone you were up against in Aberdeen or Bowie, who's the last guy that you want to see on that mound and why? I would, I mean, I'm going to say Jake Prezina because that slider changeup fastball combo that he has from the left side would not be fun to face but if i was to pick a righty that i would not want to face i would honestly say carlos tavera just because the changeup. i mean i've played catch with him and i've seen it in spring training and it looks to me like a fastball until about five feet and then it drops and hits your ankles and it's not fun to catch um so if i was in as a righty standing in the box i would not want to face carlos tavera because you know the changeups in the bag you know the sliders in the bag and then you got to deal with 95 plus so uh, I'll switch this up. Um, who is the hitter in the organization that you would not want in the box uh, in a key moment? Uh, Colton Kowser. The dude finds ways to get on. I mean, there was a time at one point this year he 
I don't remember who he told, but he might, he might have even told me. He was like, I think he was like on an 0 for 2 game, maybe 0 for 1. He's like, dude, I'm just going to go up there and try to hit it down the third baseline. Like, I'm done trying to pull the ball. And I want to say he got on base 15 out of 16 the next, like, time. And I was like, dude, what did you just change? And he's like, oh, I'm just up there trying to play pepper with it. And he's the kid that you never know when he's going to be hot, when he's going to be cold, but he always finds a way to get on base. And that's not the hitter that I want in the box. What kind of impact did he have when he got to Bowie? Because I, I think that we kind of felt all along that he was hitting better than what his numbers at Aberdeen showed, but he really took off when he got to the Bay Sox. Well, I think it's not so much of how he improved when he got to Bowie. I think it's just the vibes he brings to the clubhouse. I mean, he's one of the best clubhouse guys. I mean, when we were in Aberdeen, we were playing poker at the table. He got us all chips. He got us a table. And just to have him in the clubhouse brings everybody, like, a smile to their face every day. And it makes it more fun coming to the clubhouse. But when he got to Bowie, I mean, I got there, I believe, a week before, maybe two weeks before he did. And... Bowie was not – we weren't in the best of spots when I when Denoyer got called up, when I got called up, and then when Kowser Norby got called up, I believe, two weeks after me. I mean, he just changed how the clubhouse went around. I mean, it was so much more fun to come to the clubhouse every day. He's cracking jokes. We're playing poker. We're playing blackjack in the clubhouse. Like, he's telling us stories. But the dude flat-out rakes. I mean, I got to tell you, he's the kid that I don't want in the box. Like, if he doesn't have a good – I mean, I'm going to prefer to golf. Like, if you're having a poor contact day, the dude's still going to find a way to shoot a good number. Like, he's still going to find a way to get a hit. Even if it, the dude's throwing 97, 98, like, Kowser will find a way to get a hit or get on base. Like, I don't know exactly what his walk ratio was, but either walks or gets a hit almost every time. Like, it's really fun to watch. Yeah, Kowser, Norby, Mayo, I mean, we could go on and on with the hitters. Like we were talking about before we came on, uh, the Orioles love their hitting prospects, and it just seems like there's so many guys you could choose from. That Yeah, all three of those guys, Kowser, Norby, Mayo, like they're all the same. They all bring great vibes to the clubhouse. They're all great clubhouse guys. And then they just go out there and do what they do and work hard and flat out great. Love it. Um, we hear a lot about you know, speaking of the hitters. You know, we often hear you know it's when hitters looking at their numbers. A lot of the guys that come on the show they say you know we go zero for four, but you know if I barrel two baseballs or I'm making hard contact, like I can take solace in the fact that I had a good day that day. Um, but for pitching, we don't really hear uh, too too much about that. At, when you go back and look at your previous outing, you know the that night or the next day, however you guys uh, work this out. What specifically are you looking at when you review your outings? I'm really looking about looking at strike percentage, but not only that, but first pitch strike percentage. Like I like to get ahead. Like that's always been a thing for me is how do I get ahead? Because then, like I said earlier, it puts hitters on defensive mode. Like if you get them 0-1-0-2, they have no idea what's coming 0-2, and it may not even be in the zone. So if I'm able to – if it's maybe a bad day and I get hit around and give up some runs, but I – attack the zone and got ahead and that first pitch strike number is high and the strike percentage is high. That's one of the stats that's really important for me. So when you're reviewing that data with your pitching coaches, they know that that's something that's important to you, but are there any other things that they try to show to you as a takeaway, maybe after a bad outing to say like, this was, you know, this is where you struggled or you actually did really well here. Um, a lot of it is location. Uh, for me, my fastball plays better up in the zone um, just to 
the high spin rate and the ride rate um, as TrackMan shows. So we look at a lot of at location and if I'm getting hit around and the pitching location is fine and we don't worry about it. But if, if I'm missing spots and I'm missing over the plate, that normally will lead to a bad outing and we can see all that on TrackMan. So like looking at that stuff kind of will help if I have a bad outing, but say they're still hitting it. Because sometimes the hitters just get lucky. Like, I mean, I, there was one time I threw a, I want to say I threw a cutter on the outer third. It may have been even outer on the outer black, and the guy took it for a ball. On track man, it may have been a strike, but we're still dealing with uh, human umpires. But then the next the next pitch was down the middle, and he took it for strike two. And then I threw another pitch, and it was two balls off the plate, and he hit it 400 feet to right field. So, like, one of those days, it's like you just got to tip your cap to the guy. Like, he got the right pitch and he got lucky. So, I guess we look more at location and spin numbers and how the pitches are playing, um, along with the first pitch strike number. When you were drafted last year, how quickly did they, you know, ramp you up to the analytics and, you know, instituting a game plan? Did they just let you do what you did just to – get you like uh, in, used to professional ball and then attack it in the off season or get to it right away? I was kind of a kid in the candy store. So at New Mexico, we didn't have track, man. We didn't, we had rap soda, but we didn't ever get to look at it. So I was kind of a kid in the candy store and I was like, okay, let's take the information, see what my stuff does and then see how I can implement it. So, I mean, there was definitely a learning curve there. It took me a few months to understand what spin rate is, what ride rate is, what, how to turn pitches blue, like to get them to MLB grade. Um, so there was definitely a learning curve there, but I kind of was like a kid in the candy store. Like I jump all over the stuff. I love to read into it. I love to read analytics. Um, but then again, too, like I can't read into it too much because I still got to go out there and just pitch and play the game that I did when I was five years old because at the end of the day, it's just a game. Yeah, I feel like you went to New Mexico, Joey Ortiz at New Mexico State, Kyle Bradish at New Mexico State. I know the Orioles had uh, Tyler Irwin in the system. I can't remember if he was New Mexico or New Mexico State. I, I feel like the Orioles are going to lead the league in guys who play college ball in New Mexico when all you guys are in the major leagues pretty soon. Yeah, no, there's, uh, speaking of that, there's actually, sadly, I'm the only Lobo in our organization. Um, and there's four New Mexico State Aggies. So when New Mexico State plays New Mexico every year, it's get a little chippy, and I don't have the most say in the clubhouse that these Aggies do, but the Lobos won in basketball last year, so we'll see what happens this year. But there's definitely a little bit of uh, New Mexico State, New Mexico rivalry, but, I mean, we're all from the same state, so it is pretty cool. Now, we know the Orioles are building a pretty proficient offense when it comes to drafting and acquiring players, but how important is defense behind a pitcher, and how good are these guys – in the field is it a little underrated the aspect that they're developing those guys too um it is definitely underrated i would say we have some players not only in Bowie but in aberdeen that will be big leaguers someday it's not a matter of if but when um i mean i told somebody at home just a couple weeks ago that joey ortiz is a big league shortstop um and he should be on a big league roster come out of spring training like the dude there were some plays that he made behind me this year that i was like who made like I've never seen that play made before. I was like, he made that play, and it's just how he is. Like the dude puts in the work. There's so many of them: Norby, Mayo, Joey, Daryl, like all of them. They all should be big leaguers someday. And I mean, I honestly think they all will. It's just a matter of time. And defense is so important. Like I've said ever since I was a kid, 
defense and pitching wins games and defense and pitching wins championships. If you go up there and put up a zero, they only got to find a way to get one run. Your journey, I think, gets more fascinating the more that we learn about it. Um, you know, from I read that you kind of were questioning your future in baseball after high school. You only got one offer as a D3 offer to play college ball. And now you're ranked as by many outlets as a top 30 prospect in what many consider to be the best farm system in all of baseball. Have you allowed yourself to kind of just sit down and realize like how far you've come in your baseball journey up to this point? I definitely a lot of people ask me about it for sure. And it, it is I think about it for sure, kind of where I've come from. But my dad told me when I was a kid, like you can achieve anything you want as long as you work hard at it. Um, and I kind of, like when I was in high school and I almost didn't continue to play, um, I kind of just sat down with myself and was like, well, what are you going to do? What else are you going to do? Like, you can't, like, you really want to go get a regular job after four years of college? Or do you want to take a shot at this and keep playing? And lucky enough, I was able to get one offer to Pacific Lutheran University um, in Tacoma, Washington. And then after two years, um, after leading the country in strikeouts at the Division Three level, I got a call from John Coyne in New Mexico after entering the portal um, and they gave me an opportunity in New Mexico and then the Orioles gave me another opportunity um, in the 12th round of the 2021 draft and that's all I've ever been able to ask for is just give me an opportunity and let me work hard. So now that we're a couple months into the offseason, what are you uh, working on and what are your goals for 2023? Um, what I'm working on is I'm really working on either a changeup or a curveball to a lefty. Um, just so I have something that has a little bit more depth or runs off a lefty's bat. Um, I like where the cutter's at. I like where the slider's at. Um, those obviously still need more development to get ready for hopefully the big leagues here soon. Um, but I'm really working on that and then really just working on changing my body composition, body fat to muscle, um, and just working out my legs, trying to get stronger and throw harder. And I'm getting ready to do a uh, minor league roster prediction article for uh, – going into opening day next year. Do you expect to be in double-A Bowie's rotation or triple-A Norfolk to start next year? I mean, if I had it my way, I'd like to be in Norfolk, but that's out of my control. All I can do is go in and work hard every day, and I'll go wherever they put me. I'll do my part and put you there. However, I can help the team win. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us today, and best of luck uh, with the rest of the offseason and the 2023 season. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Thank you um, for having me on, and uh, hopefully we'll be in touch soon. But for now, uh, go Orioles. Absolutely. Justin Armbruster. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. Uh, for those of you watching our live show tonight, you're actually only seeing the second half of the show. That's because earlier today we got to talk to Orioles prospect Justin Armbruster, who was our co-winner of Orioles Pitcher of the Year in the minor leagues alongside Ryan Watson. Justin gave us a lot of good insight into his season, his approach, and just how good of a teammate Colton Gallagher is. So you patrons, uh, anyone who is subscribed to us on Patreon should have that interview now. Everybody else will hear it as part of the main show when that is released later on Monday. So, uh, Nick, I'll start with you. What were your thoughts of our interview with Justin? He's a down-to-earth guy. I mean, I love getting to talk to him. It's only 20, 20 minutes or so, but love getting to talk to him for a little bit. He definitely lightened up, and the face definitely brightened up a little bit when he was talking about his teammates, which is just awesome. It was awesome to see and hear him talk about his teammates. So 
yeah, one of these guys who last year was his first full year in the system, and he ended the year with a pretty dominant year in Double A. So uh, I, I'm excited to see where 2023 takes him. But he's definitely a very easy guy to root for, especially after you hear him uh, talk. Yeah, seems like a good dude, a good teammate, and you know, I just like getting to know these pitchers in this organization who are so under the radar and. You know, just an unassuming guy who, if you're talking to him, you wouldn't know that he's someone that's just really coming on and has a chance to really make a name for himself next year with a shot at the 2024 rotation or at least in the pitching staff for the Orioles at some point. So, yeah, I thought it was an interesting interview and uh, can't wait to see what he does next year. So, Bob, I appreciated Justin's um, modesty when you asked him where he's planning to start next season. I think the three of us know that it should be Norfolk. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, he was really good in Bowie, pitched over 50 innings there, I think. So, yeah, why not? I think him, Drew Rahm, it should be a nice AAA starting rotation to begin the year. And then once you're in AAA, you never know. He might make his Major League debut sometime in 2023. I wouldn't be shocked. We'll certainly be pulling for him here. And on tonight's show, we're also going to get into the Rule 5 draft with Vivek Sukla, who will be making an appearance to get into his favorite part of the baseball calendar. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, the wait is over. DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is officially live in Maryland. Now you can legally bet on all your favorite sports with DraftKings anytime and anywhere right here in Maryland. For a limited time, new customers who sign up with promo code on the Verge will receive $200 in free bets instantly. DraftKings has the best features, including same-game parlays, unlimited player props, and more with fast and easy payouts right at your fingertips. DraftKings Sportsbooks is where I go for all my sports betting needs. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code on the birds to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on anything only on at DraftKings Sportsbook with code on the birds. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. 21 must be 21 or older, physically present in Maryland. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus issued as free bets. See DraftKings.com slash MD for full terms and conditions. So tonight's guest is our resident Rule 5 expert here and on the verge. He's a member of our Patreon community. He is Vivek Sukla. Vivek, great to have you back on the show. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. It's uh, beginning to look a lot like Christmas with uh, the Rule 5 draft, and God forbid anything happens in the next two days before any cancellation. I know last year was uh, was a nice exercise in getting all the players together, but um, yes, fingers crossed for uh, two more days at least. Two more days of Rule 5 draft will take place in San Diego as part of the winter meetings. And although the Orioles are kind of in unfamiliar territory, at least in recent history, as they don't pick until the 17th selection. Um, one thing, Vivek, I know that you have talked about with us and that we're going to get into tonight is that this seems to be a pretty deep Rule 5 draft class. So potentially still some value, value available at the 17th pick. 100%. I think uh, definitely it's a, it's a class that has – I feel at least a combination of players that didn't get protected in the 2018 class followed by those in the 2019 class. And then few of those J two signings from 2017, 16, and even 18 that finally came up and made it to the upper level of the minors. So it's a very robust class because 
every team had to make a decision about now that our class pool got bigger, well, who can we really protect in this case? So um, I, I think pitching-wise, personally, it's it's more heavy. But I think there's some also interesting hitter profiles. And while I'm f- keeping my fingers crossed as we go through the 17 picks, I actually do feel that every single one of the major league teams could at least benefit by doing a tryout with one of these uh, one of these uh, Rule 5 picks. Because at least the, the reason I'm kind of a, a proponent of the Rule 5 is I, I don't mind bringing a player in and trying them out in spring training. And if it doesn't work out, right, at least in that moment, and I know it's only a small sample size, but you can certainly get some metrics on them. They're always measuring and trying to see maybe there's something we can work on from the beginning to the end of spring training. A pitcher, for example, would report early so they could get some data on them. But I, I think it's a great opportunity that the Orioles have capitalized because, right, if you're measuring all this data, and I can only imagine next year when StatCast is available in all of these minor league parks, how much more data we're going to actually be able to talk about when it comes to, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. Yeah, high spin rate. Oh, yeah, great vertical break over here. Or exit velocity over 100. So it's I can only imagine how it'll continue growing, but I always find it it's a nice exercise to learn about players who are on the border but still have value. And I think that's the biggest thing. I, I, I'm a... I'm a believer the Rule 5 does have added value. It's great for these players, too, to get a chance to make their Major League debut. And maybe they're in a tight spot with a deep team that, you know, otherwise it would take them a couple of years to break through, even if they do have success and they can jump right to the front of the line for some, you know, teams on the lower end. Or even, you know, you see a guy like Garrett Whitlock for Boston or our own Tyler Wells a couple of years ago just, you know, came in and were – pretty much successful right away at the major league level. So you, it can happen and we'll see if it does this year. Sure. And some of the needs that we are hearing about for the Orioles, um, left-handed bats, uh, starters, but we, you know, so there is a possibility that maybe one of those needs, I think particularly the bench or the bullpen could be helped in the rule five draft. I do want to bring this up though. And I'll start with Nick on this, which is the Orioles did make, a couple of moves recently claiming Wayland Davis off waivers and then signing Francie Cordero to what is a split contract, but technically right now is being treated as a minor league deal. That in theory adds, you know, left-handed bat depth that the Orioles would now have not have to go that route in the rule five draft. But I'm curious to get your thoughts. Do you think that it makes it more likely the Orioles target a pitcher or do you think there still could be a bat there with the 17th pick the Orioles have their eye on? I mean, I don't think signing these two guys is going to block them from doing anything. If you feel like there's someone who can give you more value in the Rule 5 draft, then obviously Diaz is someone who probably isn't too long for the 40-man roster. I don't think he's probably too long for the 40-man roster anyway. We'll see. But And Franchi Cordero, I mean, he was signed for AAA depth. I mean, if he makes it to the big leagues, great. But, I mean, somebody's got to play that outfield in Norfolk. He's not going to take time from Colton Kowser or Hudson Haskin, who most likely starts in AAA. Like, using Diaz is gone. DJ Stewart's gone. I mean, there's really no one in that Norfolk outfield right now. So you got to have that veteran depth there. So I don't think he blocks anybody. Um, I, and honestly, I think you can still go hitter because you're going to probably going to be looking at, if I had to guess, 
you know, looking at the Orioles, you're probably going to have someone who can play multiple infield positions, can probably play the outfield as well, the super utility type guy. There are a few guys, you know, we'll probably talk about who have some catcher positional versatility that I think might be a little interesting. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, I'd say odds are the Orioles go pitching. But just because they signed these two left-handed bats, does it's not going to stop them from going after more left-handed bats if they think those guys are valuable. Yeah, I was going to say that'd give us like a 90% chance to get a pitcher in a Rule 5 even before these signings. Maybe it went up to 91% after these. But uh, I, I do like these these waiver claims or these signings just because essentially they're, it's just some minor league deals. You know, Franchi Cordero, there's some upside there if he ever figures it out. He's still very young. I didn't realize how fast he was until I looked at his StatCast page recently. And, man, for someone with that kind of power to have that top-end speed is – Pretty impressive. Obviously, has not put it together yet. But if you can get him down in AAA, working with these hitting coaches, maybe they unlock something, and that's fine. I mean, there's no such thing as a bad minor league signing. And Lewin Davis is Davis. That's a that's a movie inside Lewin Davis. Uh, <laughs> Lewin Diaz is uh, essentially a minor league waiver claim. I, I think he has an option left, and he just has to be on the forty man. Maybe they try to sneak him through at some point. But again, just depth, and if you unlock something, great. If not, no harm done. Yeah, no, exactly. I think I'm so intrigued by the Orioles hitting program. And I think all of us have been with the emphasis on swing decisions, even the players we're drafting and the focus on right finding that right type of balance between contact, but also the quality of contact. And I'm, I'm so curious to see, and I'm sure Michael Elias was intrigued by right two lefty hitters that have this type of power. Is there any way we can work on improving the swing decisions? Why not put them in our program and see if we can work with them? I'm, I'm also very interested with, uh, I know they're not left-handed hitters, but I'm sure Michael Elias had fun with the Daz Cameron uh, claim where, okay, he's still about to turn 26, was a first-round pick, former top 100 prospect. Maybe let's see if there's something we can we can work with there. And I, I think it'll be interesting. Um, just, I mean, it, he was doing well in the, astro system and then after the trade it all kind of fell apart so who knows maybe there's something that we can bring back um if the rule five does have that type of hitter that there's a, a trait that the orioles want to optimize yeah bring them into our system i i'm actually so impressed with so far how many of our hitters this year uh rutchman henderson stowers vavra still had respectable seasons in their debut. I mean, obviously the first two are no brainers, but they, they respect, just respectable. <laughs> yeah. It's a great point about Cameron. I mean, yeah, again, that's a depth move, but if again, they have experience working with him and it worked out when they had him. So maybe you can get all back on track, but worst case, he's going to provide some pretty good defense for your pitchers in AAA, whether he plays every day or just sparingly. So can't hurt. Vic, I think that this is something you've you know talked about in, in our Patreon chat a lot, and in some of the data that you've gathered for us certainly reflects this. I think, as would be expected, a lot of the talent from the Rule Five draft class this year is going to come from organizations that are stacked. Uh, you look yeah. at places like Tampa Bay and Cleveland and Los Angeles, who has a player that I want to bring up here in a minute, and you could put together a list of multiple players out of those organizations that are probably going to be taken in the draft. Would you say? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think 
even as we were looking at some of the players and maybe specifically on on, on the pitching side, I I think the way you see the depth reflective of the Tampa Bay Rays and Cleveland Guardians, who are so easily able to deal pitching because they have that much confidence in bringing it all back and then getting very intriguing prospects. So uh, I, I think you guys will, 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 will probably get into a little bit as well. But uh, Cleveland, Tampa, I'll even give a lot of credit also to um, the Brewers, the Pittsburgh Pirates. There was uh, a lot of interesting reliever types, especially also the Dodgers, where uh, we could definitely all have like a certain trait that if this is what we wanted to focus on, the Orioles could do. Um, generally when I'm doing my searches, uh, I think I, one of the first things I ever mentioned on the podcast last year is I'm a, I'm a, I love ground ball rates. I love pitchers who can, uh, throw that sinker, throw inside and be able to generate those ground balls. And especially with our, uh, Kyle Gibson just signing, I was just so happy that, okay, it's a sinker baller and you put our defense in, then, you know, you got a, you got a chance for a double play there most often than, than not. So, uh, ground ball rates, Babib. K's per nine innings, there are uh, high velocity four seam fastballs up in the zone. And then the hardest thing that came by was trying to find spin data on certain players. So um, maybe I haven't used the tools yet that are readily available to find this information, but Twitter and then doing a few Google searches sometimes does find interesting information. So I, I echo that same sentiment that there is like certain characteristics that make uh, a relief profile, pitcher profile, or a hitter profile stand out. Yeah, I think Jorge Mateo might be Kyle, Gibson, Kyle Gibson's new best friend uh, if things <laughs> go according to this past year. Yeah, absolutely. One name I had my eye on in particular, talking about bats for a moment, is Ryan Noda, who spent last season with AAA Oklahoma City in the Dodgers system. Hit 259 with a 395 on base percentage, 474 slugging percentage, 25 homers, and 20 stolen bases. According to Baseball America, um, 44.8% hard hit rate, and he rates as, quote, one of the better first base defenders in the minor leagues. So you're looking at a guy who maybe the outfield first base type is not necessarily what the Orioles would be looking at typically, but hits the ball hard, great ties a defender, and a left-handed bat. So, Nick, I know you've tweeted about him over at our account, at BSL on the Verge, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on him. I like Ryan Noda a lot when I was just doing my initial research on some of these guys. A couple of things, and we can probably talk about more about this interview as we go through, but uh, we were talking about it before we came on. The interview that Mike Snyder, director of pro scouting for the Orioles, did on was the Mass and Hot Stove show, uh, the other day, like it's on YouTube, probably on Madison's account, like go check that out for sure. And he pretty much tells you what the Orioles are looking for and how they attack this rule five draft. It was an awesome uh, interview, but my biggest takeaway from that, other than it's probably going to be a pitcher who throws really hard and <laughs> he gets those ground balls is that it's, they want somebody who's going to be able to make an impact in the major leagues this year. I, you're not going to get a project guy. So like I, when I was looking through these guys, any, there are 50 different names that I think were super intriguing, but like project types, injury concern guys who you're going to have to like stash or whatever. That's not going to be a thing the Orioles do. Noda's got considerable upper level experience, 
15, 16% walk rates like in double A and triple A, it's huge. The only thing that I saw, and I feel like a lot of Dodgers fans are like, yeah, he's gone. You know, somebody's going to take him in the draft this year. The One of the biggest knocks though I saw was, I think it was Fangraphs had something about he only hits like 203 on fastballs 93 and up. Uh, so that was like one red flag I did see, but I think there are a lot of a lot of Ryan Nota fans, from what I gather, doing a little, little bit of research on him. Yeah, Vivek, did you have any notes oh, on this yeah. guy? No, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I got enough personal. Oh no, no, okay. <laughs> I missed the cue there. Um, no, you're good. I, I think I think Ryan Nota definitely someone I had also on my list, and I had him on a preliminary list along with there's a Justin Yurchek as well on the Dodgers system. And these are two first baseman outfielder types that I've always kept in mind because they have really good bat to ball skills and a relatively disciplined eye. Now I get that Ryan Noda struck out maybe over, I think it was 160, 170 times this year, but I'm also looking at the fact he had 92 walks that batting average came up, I think around, um, what were we just saying with Noda? I think just two, right 259 at least in that case but i i noticed the difference from the 2018 to 19 to 21 and then now 22 there was like a absolute effort in terms of putting in more power so maybe there was a decision made there from the dodgers side of okay your strikeouts might go up but we want the quality of contact to be there and so i think nick you hit it right on the head there there was two like words that i snagged onto when mike snyder was talking about the power relievers, for example, that are ready to contribute now. So even taking off all of the projects, that was something that kind of took about 30% of my list away in a way because, okay, no projects in that way. And then the second one was interesting was I didn't think he'd mention position bats and maybe he just didn't want to give away anything. But yeah, power positional bats. I think like... Ryan Noda is someone, as like Zach was mentioning earlier with the Franchi Cordero, the Lewin Diaz. He's someone I would want competing right with them during this process. Like, you know what? Can can Ryan Noda actually contribute as a, a solid lefty bat off the bench? Not necessarily to platoon with Ryan Mountcastle, but could come up in certain situations. So if there's a moment where he needs to do a, a pinch hint, defensively i think it's it's kind of nice to hear positive attributes when it comes to he plays a really good first base and i feel like we sometimes take that for granted um because we're all about positional versatility um but i i think that's something that's noteworthy so uh 395 on base i've been probably banging the the door on signing michael brantley but i i really would wish this year our focus would be on on base percentage so yeah, if he's available at 17 and he played the whole year at AAA, he's knocking on the door. Someone someone should give him an opportunity. That's, yeah, Justin's question there. What do you guys think about picking up Matt Gorski? I was going to like kind of lump all these Pirates guys. I highlighted three Pirates guys, the hitters, Malcolm Nunez, Matt Gorski, and Blake Sable. I, I just, Blake Sable, catcher, outfielder. I know there are a lot of reports don't like the defense, but you talk about on base percentage. I think he had a 363 on base percentage between double A and triple A. Matt Gorski, a 358 on base percentage. And then Malcolm Nunez is the younger guy of this group, probably limited to DH from what I've seen. Again, pretty poor defensive ratings there, but a 367 on base percentage. All three of these guys, good power numbers. Uh, 
in Sable and Gorski, well, in Sable's case, some positional flexibility there. Maybe not your backup catcher, but like a third, de facto third catcher on the roster. Any interest in some of these Pirates hitters? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I guess the way to put it would be, I, I, I know the Pirates are also in a similar rebuild, and it's very possible that even this year they could have that Oriole-esque breakout. With that being said, I thought there was a few questionable decisions that they could have protected. Um, certainly, obviously, the pitching side is, is one aspect, but Malcolm Nunez, who was kind of like your prized possession in the Jose Quintana trade, and it is very hard for a 2018 J2 signing with a COVID year to make it all the way to AAA. Like, I wouldn't have had him on the list if it was like, okay, he just came up to high A or maybe just had a brief stint in double A. No, he was he was doing an excellent job and got all the way to triple A. And especially with a team, right, that's still looking for options, I don't think you would want to risk losing someone like Malcolm Nunez because I can easily see if Oakland, if Nats, Nationals, if any of the other Kansas City Royals, if any team wanted just to insert a DH power bat, maybe occasional third base, try him out first base. Why not give this young 22 year old a chance? So out of all like the 2018 J2 signings, he's one of the furthest advanced along the way and 69 walks to 101 strikeouts. That's hard to teach as well. So we're not even talking about a guy who strikes out a lot. So yeah, Nick, I, I at least with, 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 um, with Nunez, that was one that kind of, Open my eyes a bit as to like how did this guy not get protected at least mm-hmm. another interesting name to me was uh wasn't there someone this whole Astros thing with James Click getting fired and who's running the show over there to let like, didn't they just acquire a guy at the trade deadline who was in their like top 10 prospects and he's available in the rule five draft like that makes no sense to me exactly I think uh Jaden Murray the pitcher yeah, yeah, this this is one I, I looked into a lot, like just to like double check my notes, like, wait a minute, there's no way because I had him on the preliminary list as, oh, he's so getting protected. <laughs> and then I had to go back. So uh, what I've read up on him, elite strike thrower, but along with the elite strike thrower profile is that there's been improvements in his sinker. The sinker has been up to 95, 96, even touched 97, was doing exceptionally well. And double A, uh, I think it's Montgomery Biscuits on the Tampa Bay squad. Then they moved over, had one start in Durham. He had some time to adjust, but he wasn't as successful in the PCL. But we also know about the PCL environment. Um, what I loved most about him was just the command that he has, the sinker, uh, again, generating those ground ball rates, um, really, really solid slider. And he's also been known as having a high spin guy. He's basically a high spin guy. So uh, I saw one report that was really praising Click that even though you gave away Chase McDermott and you also gave away Jose Siri, you got back a very intriguing pitcher from the Tampa Bay Rays system. So uh, again, I know the Tampa Bay Rays always have a, a roster crunch and that's probably why the rule eligible one got off and, and left. But Oh my God! Yeah, if 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 Jaden Murray is there hypothetically at seventeen, it's interesting because I don't need him to start for the Orioles. He can be a middle reliever 
and eat up some of those innings. And then should a need come up, then certainly that's something that we would uh, write insert in. So for me, Jaden Murray could could play that Tyler Wells type of role. Um, yeah, I agree with you. And I think that if you go back to that 2021 Rule 5 draft where they picked up Max Roller and Tyler Wells, so Roller obviously didn't work out, but it was the starter's profile that drew the Orioles' interest. So I could see where Murray fits that bill. A uh, question here from Strictly Goaded on YouTube. Who do you think is the best pitcher the Orioles could get? Yeah, that's a great question. I think maybe to answer this question, I would maybe have to do some elimination of, of certain players. And let me know if you guys would want me to run through a few names just to see. So uh, at least to kind of top it off, um, one pitcher, for example, Peyton Badenfield is someone who was in AAA all year. He has spent time in the Houston org, the Tampa Bay org, the Cleveland org. Literally, you could say the three best pitching development type of organizations. And I was a bit surprised that he wasn't protected. Um, Peyton Battenfield, I know the velocity may not be there to be a top-notch starter. Maybe there's some value in relief. Again, he's also a spin rate, high spin efficiency type of guy really high vertical arm slot. And I know the Orioles like that. Um, but I, I think one of the things I absolutely loved was, uh, again, he's a fan. He's in like fan graphs is someone who has put him on the notice of like, he could be a borderline top hundred. He's got a starters profile. Um, so he's someone I feel like would be selected early because right now I think he could provide the nationals athletics and, uh, I'm trying to remember the other team, maybe the Pirates even, a fourth or fifth type of starter look. Um, Jaden Murray we mentioned. Then there's Thad Ward from Boston Red Sox. And this guy just recently on Fangraphs was interviewed. I had Thad Ward on last year's list. Like, I really wanted Thad Ward. And I know he wasn't major league ready yet and was coming back after Tommy John. But this is also probably something we have to think and maybe worry about Kyle Brunovich too, because he also had his surgery in May and then started pitching again in July. And so Thad Ward was someone I definitely wanted, had a really good AFL performance, fastball 92, 94, but he's also known for that legendary sweeper. And he himself, Thad Ward, when he was healthy, was the pitcher of the year in the org of the Red Sox. So I don't know why even after coming back from Tommy John and performing well and then showcasing in the AFL, why they still didn't get protected. So Thad Ward's also, a, again, a high spin rate type of guy. Um, and then maybe just to round off some of the more notorious names, uh, I've loved An Antoine Kelly, even though he walks the world. But I still feel like, man, I, it's hard to sometimes get a nice lefty with that type of velocity. And I'd love to bring him in for a spring training to see if we can improve his control. This is a similar uh, profile of a 60 grade fastball, 60 grade slider. And that's what CNL Perez was also doing when it came to the number of walks he was giving up. Like, I think it's really hard to replicate those types of lefties with velocity, but Antoine Kelly was definitely someone who, Again, traded over to Texas, and Antoine Kelly was someone I was envisioning, for example, in a Trey Mancini trade, if if Mancini even went to the Brewers, for example. So 
Uh, I, a bit surprised he was he was left off. When I when I think of notorious names, those are the ones I think about. But in my honest opinion, I I think they're gonna get taken before the seventeenth pick. So it's really hard to answer that question of who's the best available pitcher for us by that time. So I would just defer to very interesting relief pitchers. And that's something probably we can we can get into. But at least those names I had as some of the top pitchers when it came to starters, reliever type of profiles. And, you know, at one point they were rated very highly. Yeah, I like Antoine Kelly a lot. Six five lefty, like you mentioned, he, he had thoracic outlet uh, surgery as well, and he's still throwing ninety eight miles an hour, which I'm like, that's amazing. I think Eric Longenhagen had a note that says if he could just get forty grade control, you put him in your bullpen right now and be happy with him. Um, so that's definitely interesting. Yeah. And with Jaden Murray, back to him real quick. I I would love if the pick is Jaden Murray because he's great. I mean, Fangrass has him as the Astros eighth ranked prospect, but he was part of the Trey Mancini trade. So if we get Jaden Murray back as part of this, like you're going to get three uh, really good pitching prospects for Trey Mancini. Yeah. It just <laughs> makes the trade better. Um, but yeah, those are all good guys. But yeah, I think there are a lot, definitely more interesting uh, relief options for sure. Well, what about Justin Jarvis too? I think that's a name that I liked a lot from Milwaukee's organization talking yeah. about starters. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 150 strikeouts and 141 innings, just 22 years old. I feel like this guy could pitch in the major league bullpen for sure next year and probably be someone who like you develop over the next year or two as a starter, even hundred percent. And uh, to, to jump on that, Nick, I'm so happy you brought that up because I would have probably like kicked myself if I forgot Justin Jarvis. Um, this is probably the first name I picked up when was starting the whole process back in July, July, August, where I was hoping this guy would be unprotected. I think one of the most interesting thing I read, and I give a lot of credit to Tiran, who's a writer on Prospects Live, and he rated his fastball having up to 20 inches of inverted uh, induced vertical break and that's again something that would be in the 90th if not 99th percentile of fastballs it's a really high 60 maybe even 65 grade fastball it's a foundational fastball as he puts it and it it gets me thinking right like this high and again same thing high vertical arm slot which i know is something that the orioles also like um four seam rides really beautifully and then jumps on on hitters um and he was one of the best pitchers coming out during Grayson's year. So he was the number one pitcher, high school pitcher coming out of North Carolina. He was number 13 uh, rated from perfect game. So there's a there's a pedigree there, at least where he, you know, stood when it came to that. And if he was 94, 96 coming in as a starter, I, I am also intrigued about, okay, let's maybe let him air it out a bit. So, uh, Justin Jarvis having that foundational fastball is is something that like okay that's a trait that if the Orioles want that type of happy fastball um okay this is something we should maybe target and I actually do feel he would be available at 17 because you don't hear too much about him in the industry so a friend of the show, Andy Casca, was uh, <clears throat> doing a roundtable recently with Nathan Ruiz over the Baltimore Sun. And Andy name-checked two pitchers that I wanted to bring up tonight. One of them is Steven Cruz. 
And if this sounds familiar, it's because the Orioles clearly have a type for this kind of Minnesota Twins prospect. Cruz is a six foot seven, 225 pound right hander who strikes out a ton of batters, but also issues a lot of walks. In 56 innings with Double A Wichita last year, he fanned 72 batters while walking 35 in the process. He is Rule 5 eligible this offseason, as is another pitcher that Andy mentioned, Andrew Schultz, a pitcher in the Phillies system, a right-hander who, again, good strikeout numbers, but a lot of walks. He split most of the season between high A Jersey Shore and double A Redding. He was a little bit better, actually, at Redding in some areas. Lower ERA there than he had at high A Jersey Shore, but got just 14 and two-thirds innings at double A before the season ended. Um Cruz in particular does sort of fit the mold of other pitchers that we've seen the Orioles target in the past. But I want to bring this up to you guys. Do you see either one of them as viable options? Because on one hand, they're probably going to be available around where the Orioles pick. And there are, is certainly upside. But both right now kind of present as projects that the Orioles, as they try to contend next season, might not want to take on. Yeah, I mean, I Cruz definitely stood out to me. I actually have four pitchers here on my twins list that I don't know. These twins guys, I mean, I don't know where they're producing them from, but it's like Cruz, if you can touch 101, he said 101 with a power slider, I think is what Baseball America had in his report. Almost 15 Ks per nine in A ball, still about 12, 11 and a half Ks per nine in double A. I, all of these guys are going to have some sort of issue. And with a lot of the pitchers, it seems like walks the commands. It seems to be that issue. But Stephen Cruz definitely stands out when I listen to that Mike Snyder interview of this is a guy you can stick in the bullpen for sure. And even other guys, they got like uh, Cody Larson. I think Baseball America said he's got one of the most effective four-seamers in all of minor league baseball last year. A lot of strikeouts there. He doesn't have the velo, though. Austin Schufler, five pitches, touches 98. A lot of strikeouts. 60% ground ball rate in the minor leagues as well. And then Evan Sisk, a lefty, 76 strikeouts, 63 innings, a funky delivery, low whip, doesn't allow home runs. Those twin Stephen Cruz is a, was a good name drop there by Andy. And I think any one of these twins pitchers would honestly be kind of interesting. No, absolutely. I, uh, I, 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 I think the twins are very underrated when it comes to the number of prospects. There was even two other pitchers last year that were eligible, and they're still eligible this year. Uh, Cody Funderburk, who's a ground ball specialist. Jordan Gore, who's a converted shortstop into a reliever profile. But yeah, uh, Evan Sisk, if you guys, if anyone's watching right now, I dare you to go just watch his delivery. This, like, I know we don't have the loogie anymore. And you have to kind of pitch, obviously, to three three batters per the rules, unless you're going to work it in a way. But there is no left-hander that's going to hit him. It's just, I, I think the batting average against him was .08 this year. And it's it's a lefty specialist up to, what number did I have here? He was about 54, 50, 50% ground ball rate. Austin Schulfer is also another one who had 50-plus percent ground ball rate. There's a lot of solid ground ball pitchers, at least in the twin system. And um, that's also what Yenier Cano was. And that's kind of part of the reason why we also brought him in. So, yeah, at least from the trades and even from the rule five. OK, there's there's clearly a vested interest in the Orioles that they know 
some of the twins prospects pretty well. And yeah, any of those relievers could definitely fall under middle relief. I think it's definitely a good draft for let's find some middle relief prospects that are also valuable. Um, All right. We can, we'll be losing to Lucas. We let's take a break there. That's good. <laughs> we can take a break from names. That was a lot of names we're just throwing out yeah, there. Yeah. people. I got some more. I'm sure Vivek has a lot more, but let's talk about the Orioles guys. And yes. we talked about a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, but do you guys think the Orioles are legitimately in danger of losing anyone on the major league phase of the rule five draft? I feel like if they lose someone, it's going to be one of those Arizona fall league arms. So it could be Easton Lucas, especially if you have a team that believes he could be a starter eventually. I also question if he had had more innings at double A this year, if Nolan Hoffman would be on the 40 man right now. And when you're looking at a guy who has pinpoint command, excellent ground ball rates, that's someone that I could see a team taking a flyer on. Nick Ritzman is more of a long shot because the track record just isn't there up until this year. But he also profiles as the kind of guy that, with the right tutelage, could be a fast riser next year. So I really, really hope that he sticks. Honestly, I hope all three stick. But I really hope in particular that Ritzman sticks because we didn't get to see that much of him during the regular season. But what we saw, there was a clear improvement from the pitcher he was in the Tiger system. So I hope he sticks with the Orioles, and I think it would be a big leap for him to be major league ready, but I also wouldn't be shocked to see a team uh, take a chance on him. Yeah, I think those three bullpen arms have a chance to be picked. I saw Greg Cullen was mentioned in uh, an article. I think it was Baseball America, and I know Vivek agrees with me here, but I worry about Kyle Bronovich getting taken just because it seems like he's coming back pretty quickly from his Tommy John surgery, and he definitely has some upside. Zach Peake, a little less worried about just because there's a longer recovery uh, timetable there, but I would hate to lose him too. So uh, I don't think there's anyone in our top 30 because I don't, I can't remember if Bronovich is in there or just outside of it, but I don't think we're in danger of losing anyone at the upper end, but there's still definitely guys that I would be totally bummed to see selected on Wednesday. Yeah. I, I think there's uh, Easton Lucas could certainly get selected, but I could then also argue I think there are other higher-profile left-handers that have a better case. Um, and then with Nolan Hoffman, he's someone who's 60-plus percent in ground ball percentage. You could definitely certain, certainly see that a team taking a chance on him, but I think it's also unlikely. Um, and yeah, I'm with you with the Kyle Branovich. He He started throwing before John Means even, and I was kind of surprised by that. So... Again, you know, the double knuckle curve. I think the way Fangraphs also wrote was like, look, I know there's obviously the concerns about the fastball velocity. Will it miss enough bats? Is he mixing in the changeup in the knuckle curve enough? Um, but I also feel like he's someone who fits into not exactly Peyton Battenfield, but he could give you four or five innings. Like, all right, if you need a back end starter, for example, and that's what I hope, I hope Kyle Branovich does stay. If if he was still in the organization, I would have said Brennan Hanafi, who I know is also a favorite. And I, I again wish him the best. Um, I I know he's the last one of the last few remaining from the Duquette regime, but uh, 
if he was still in the org, I would have said Brendan Hanafy. Um, maybe we will rule five him, but I, I, I digress. I, I, I think, um, I think relatively though, the Orioles have made the right decisions for the protections. Um, a quick name to shout out would also be Cole Uvila. He seems to be a data darling who had only one bad month. I think it was in June and everything else was like sub three ERA high K per nine inning. So he had triple a time this year. And I think it was driveline that also likes him. Maybe it was Kyle body Bodie who wrote once wrote during that rule five last year. The Orioles certainly have a certain type and any model would be happy to have a Colo Vila in their system. So, um, I think if anything, yeah, uh, I don't see any hitters being taken from 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 our angle. Um, but pitchers, I'm also doubtful given the level of immense number of pitching that's uh, in this draft. Well, now that you mentioned Brandon Hanafi, I'm going to go drink some more um, after the show. But <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I'm just going to repeat what I said last week or the week before that I'm not concerned. Branovich a little, little bit, but. I'm not really concerned about losing anybody else uh, or at least if they get drafted it, sticking with their team. So I'd imagine maybe you take a flyer on one of those relievers that y'all were talking about and they end up getting returned. But I'm again, I'm more concerned. And if I knew the rosters and we could do a full episode about this, I would. And I know Vivek would as well. A minor league phase of the rule five draft uh, preview for the extreme diehards out there. But like, I don't think we ever, I don't even think like procedurally they're like so-and-so has been promoted to AAA because you have to be what, protected on the AAA roster to not get selected in the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft. So that would be the area of concern, which I also believe that happens what, right after the major league phase. So I'm concerned there. I'm looking for guys, a lot of those guys like Aberdeen, um, would they get picked? Or even, I was looking at the list again real quick, Michel Deson, like, would they move him up? Uh, is there going to be enough space? I don't know how much space there is to protect guys. Could he be someone that the Orioles lose in the minor league phase of this thing? I don't know, but yeah, major league phase. I'm not too concerned. No, yeah, yeah. Point. yeah. especially because I'm not sure of the rules of like, do, can they just be on the AAA roster for a temporary and then, you know, open the season back in Delmarva? Like, I'm not exactly sure how that works, but I, I'd love to dive into it one day. Yeah. I think of the, I guess, Ignacio Feliz situation, right? Because, like, Padres got him, I think, in a trade or was, like, a minor league signing. But Ignacio Feliz technically hadn't pitched even at A-ball yet. So we started him in Delmarva, got him up to Aberdeen, Aberdeen, and then and so forth. So, yeah, those would technically be, be eligible. So I guess... I hate, yeah, I, I hate to say it, but I, I do believe those uh, guys, Michelle and, and uh, the fellow of uh, other uh, J2 class members from those trades would be eligible. So, yeah, I, I do hope we get our hands on a on a, what that AAA roster ends up being so that we can then be like, okay, who, who are we at risk of losing? Um, I, I'm with you, Nick. I think that's where we could take some damage um, in the minor league yeah. phase. And hopefully pick up some... Uh... Interesting prospects as well. Yeah, pitchers too. There's so many pitchers. Your Xavier Moore, like your Jake Prezina. Spoiler: Jake Prezina gets another, gets some more love on tonight's episode. Uh, in the first part, um, 
yeah, your Cage Strouds, John Mioli was ready to <laughs> the John Mioli hype on Cage Stroud. Yeah, that's gonna be a fun part to watch. I'm just excited for Wednesday. I want to see who gets picked and who the Orioles take in both phases. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing to note right now, we were trying to figure out before the show. Um, the Orioles, once the signing of Kyle Gibson becomes official, I believe that's going to put their 40-man roster at 39 players. So they should have at least one spot open when the draft rolls around on Wednesday, provided that there aren't other moves. So I'm going to go ahead and kind of bring this back to what the Orioles might pick and go around to the three of you, starting with Bob. Number one, will the Orioles make a selection? And then number two, what kind of player are they going to take? Is it going to be a position player, a reliever, um, a potential starter? And if you can name a specific player as an added bonus, that would be great. I think I might be the wrong guy for that. <laughs> but I do think they will take someone because, you know, what's the worst that happens? You bring them into spring training, doesn't work out, you send them back, and you lose half of the money it costs you to select them in the process. I do think it will be a pitcher. I mean, I'd love to get a guy like Jaden Murray, who's like, you know, a legitimate prospect or, you know, some of these other, I love all a bunch of these guys that you guys are talking about, but more, most likely it will probably be since we have the 17th pick that it will be like a guy that they're hoping can be a decent relief prospect. And, and that would be cool too. So yeah, I do think they'll take someone and it'll be a pitcher. I'll say Jaden Murray just because that's the one I want, but. Nope. It's going to be a hitter. And it's going to be either Griffin Conine or Victor Victor Mesa. That's, that's what it's got to be. Sorry, Orioles fans. Um, Redemption. Uh, <laughs> I was really going through this list, the Fangraphs list, and be like, oh, these names. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's definitely going to be a pitcher, and it's going to be one of the relievers. And I don't, if you know Vivek wants to talk about some of his ground ball monsters, uh, I the name I'm going after. It's my guy. Let me find everything else here so I can uh, pull up uh, all the numbers. It's going to be Kevin Kelly, and it better be Kevin Kelly. Orioles, somebody from the front office, we know you listen. Um, put this into the right person's ears. Uh, Kevin Kelly from the Cleveland Guardians. The Guardians actually have a bunch of guys who they don't throw hard. It's like upper 80s, barely 91 miles an hour, funky deliveries, but they get the job done at the highest levels of the minor leagues. It's unbelievable what Cleveland can do with their pitching development. But <clears throat> Kevin Kelly, a JMU guy, 204 ERA between AA and AAA, 1.12 whip, sub 200 batting average against, allowed just one home run all season, 56% ground ball rate in AA, and a 62% ground ball rate in AAA. The guy, he doesn't throw extremely hard, but I remember, and I can't speak specifically to what Cleveland's done with him, but I know when he was in college, his final year at college, he was throwing from like four different arm angles and could do it in the same at bat. And it didn't matter where he, which arm angle he was using. He had the release point down perfect at each arm angle. He was throwing like seven, eight different pitches. He's like you Darvish over there, just creating pitches out of thin air. I mean, the kid is uh, one of the brightest kids I've ever talked to baseball with i mean kevin kelly is a guy who gets overlooked and you probably heard nothing about but he's had tremendous success in the upper levels of the minor leagues he's a ground ball machine and uh he's got a good teammate shelton perkins already here in the organization so i know the orioles have seen him pitch plenty of times so he's battled kyle Bronovich. he's battled griffin mcclarty on friday nights in the caa 
make it happen, Baltimore. No, absolutely. I, I think, again, Kevin Kelly, a great pick. And really a, a credit goes to, I, I listed out four Cleveland Guardian relievers and, and that list. Um, man, again, that speaks to Guardian's depth. Like all four of them had enough seasoning at AAA that would have merited protection on any other team. So I think at least one of those relievers gets gets picked. Um, I'm, if possible, I, I wanted to list two guys that we haven't mentioned yet. Even though I'm a Justice Jarvis, a huge fan, and would, would be thrilled to have him. Um, the first one I'm going to start off with, and it was someone I learned late of in the process, was Justin Yeager. And Justin Yeager, again, a 2019, let me pull up my list. Uh, again, a 2019 33rd round pick. 3.10 ERA, 3.85 FIP. Uh, I love 81 strikeouts in 52.1 innings. He spent the year in double, uh, high A and double A. So you might feel like he might be a little bit far away. I love the fact that he got some training in the offseason, a great weight uh, training program. I forget the name that he, where he went to, but the fastballs between 96 and 99 sliders between 88 and 91 um sorry 88 89 uh or 91 the splitter and then an 86 to 89 slider so he's been throwing very heavily if you watch the videos on justin yeager again high electric fastball like it's such a quick arm action that it just explodes on you so this this four seamer he's not a traditional ground ball pitcher in that sense but the fastball just explodes in that way. And he's very under the radar. I haven't seen anyone talk about him. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a bone here. I think Justin Yeager is someone that could definitely be there. And this is especially considering the two popular names you guys get with the Braves are Indigo Diaz and Victor Vodnik. So I know those two are on everyone's like profiles, but Justin Yeager is one. The second one I would go with is Jose Lopez. And this is someone that through the process of just a few Twitter searches, I later found out is he did the traditional, uh, right, last year Felix Bautista pitched at three levels and then got protected. He also did a similar high A, double A, triple A type of ascent. And Jose Lopez is a lefty. 94 to 96 sometimes tops at 97 from the left side he was a 2016 j2 signing again 2.43 ra 2.77 fip and then wait for it 95 strikeouts in 59 innings so a huge k per nine inning that's 13 14 k's per nine inning he only pitched two innings at triple a but I feel like there was a plan to get this guy protected, but it just didn't work out. And if you do watch him pitch, he reminds me a lot of Jose Alvarado, who was you saw with the Phillies, but later again was traded over from uh, the Tampa Bay Rays. So uh, once again, uh, Cleveland and Tampa, they do a great job in their, their pitching development as always. And uh, I do commend them for that. I think Justin Yeager and... Jose Lopez really fall under that. Okay. Power high octane K per nine inning. You're not going to touch my stuff. So there's, there's a lot more that I obviously could name off. Um, but I, I think those two definitely uh, stick out for me. And 
I also have to realistically think who's available at 17. Um, yeah. yeah, that's the hard thing for me is that there are so many pitchers, and I think it will be a pitcher, and there are so many pitchers that I like in this class, but I can't quite figure out who it's going to be. Um, two names that I'm going to throw out. I do think Steven Cruz is a legitimate option um, just for some of the reasons we talked about. The stuff is there, and although the Orioles don't want to take on a project, I wonder if they feel like they could work with him in a way that they worked with Felix Bautista last year and possibly with a better bullpen and hopefully a better starting rotation, ease him in with low leverage situations. That's a move that could pay off. And another guy I've got my eye on is Matt Ruppenthal, who was an Astros prospect originally drafted by Michael Elias out of Vanderbilt. Um, You look at the numbers and at first glance last year, nothing particularly special jumps out, but this is a pretty good arm who looked good at Corpus Christi for most of last season, struggled at AAA, but he also pitched in the Arizona Fall League and looks good out there. So here's someone, and I, you know, I'm not saying it just because this regime is familiar with him, but I do think there's an added advantage there of they have the background on him. Maybe they feel like they could bring him in and work with him. So those are two names that I would not be shocked to see the Orioles take. They took Brandon Bailey, right, in uh, was 2020. So there is precedent. It was Houston, too. They had a couple of interesting guys, I think. We talked about Jaden Murray, obviously, but there's some interesting catchers. Again, I don't know if the Orioles go catcher, but and some outfielders. You got Marty Costas. Maxwell Costas is in the organization. I, I've, seen some, I've seen some interesting tidbits on Marty Costas. I don't know if you know more, Vivek, but – yeah, I'd be curious yeah. if these Astros guys get a little bump up in in the rankings when the Orioles are preparing for this. Oh, definitely. I um, I, I give a I, I shout out to again uh, Chris Resitara. You guys have seen also on Twitter. He's he and Luke Siler are the two that again inspire me to do this Rule Five uh, penance in a way <laughs> you can call it. Um, but yeah. Marty Costas was someone that was also on Chris's list last year, and I never really understood why until also Jeff Pontus wrote an article at Baseball America about he has some of the best exit velocity numbers. It's just he doesn't hit a lot of home runs. So it's one of those cases where, okay, can you tap into that launch angle a bit? Is there anything swing change-wise mechanically you can do to maybe tap into more power? But regardless, right, it's kind of like that Ramon Oria situation where he improved the launch angle, but Ramon always knew how to hit the ball hard. So, again, uh, Marty Costas. Corey Jolks is another name that keeps popping up, and I'm, I'm a bit iffy on it because I'm always, and I, I probably shouldn't forget him as well, but there was a lot of really good PCL hitter performances. And this is sometimes the hardest thing to differentiate because we always hear about the home run friendly environments and then to not worry about pitchers who have a six plus ERA, but it's also kind of like not easy to like not look at that (laughs) by any means. Um, But Corey Jolks had a breakout year and I think it was again, a product of mechanical changes. Um, He was a 2017 draft pick. So he's been rule five eligible twice now. So this would be his third time. It's probably unlikely he gets protected, but there was a considerable power improvement in 2021 and then really in 2022. So 
again, if any team needed just a corner outfield bet, Corey Jelks is another in the Houston Astros system. Yeah, there's an interesting note. Another old friend is Rule Five eligible in uh, you know Mason McCoy, and you're talking about PCL and hitters and trying oh to like God. since we don't have like that a lot of that underlying data, it's so difficult to like. Right, you play in the PCL. How much of this is real? How much is wind aid like the environment aided? Mason McCoy hit 21 home runs last year in the Mariners AAA system. Yeah. So it's like he was a 2020, <laughs> 20 steals, 20 home runs, and I I lost it. <laughs> but yeah, it's it definitely makes it more difficult to judge some of these uh these West Coast guys. Anything's possible. <laughs> Anything's possible. Yeah. So before we wrap up tonight, we should note the big news um, out of Birdland this week, at least so far, and that's the signing of Kyle Gibson, who agreed to a one-year deal, and he'll presumably fill that Jordan Lyles role next year, a veteran who's going to eat innings and hopefully not be the only upgrade that the Orioles make to their rotation this offseason. The baseline stats for Gibson last year were not spectacular, in particular an ERA just north of five. However, he did that while pitching in front of one of the worst defenses in the major leagues with the Phillies and also pitching what is a proven hitters park, um, Citizens Bank Park. So the Orioles certainly hoping that that underlying data showing that in a better environment, Gibson would have had a typical Kyle Gibson season, which is, you know, good walk rate, gets a good number of ground balls and an ERA somewhere in the mid threes is what they get from him next year. Bob, I'll start with you. Um, we don't know the financial terms yet, I believe, and the n- news has not been officially announced by the Orioles, but what are your thoughts on the Gibson signing? Um, let's see. I think actually while we were recording, it was announced that it was one year, $10 million. So pretty much right what I would have expected. I would have said between 8 and $10 million. So in the upper end of that, you see the pitching market's pretty healthy right now. So makes sense to me, but... You know, at first I was underwhelmed. He was not one of the guys that I was hoping for, for that, you know, second starting pitcher that hopefully the Orioles are going to sign to of this offseason. But looking into it more, it it makes perfect sense to me. They declined Jordan Lau's option at $11 million and signed Kyle Gibson for 10 And he's just, to me, he's a clear step above Lau's. He's basically Lau's on steroids. Uh-huh. If you look at his baseball savant page, they're very similar in just like what they do well, what they don't do as well. But Gibson's num- uh, sliders are a little bit more to the right than Lyle's. So meaning he's a little bit better at pretty much everything. And he's a ground ball pitcher. So, you know, Lyle's is a fly ball pitcher. You turn him into a ground ball pitcher, someone that misses bats a little bit more. And you get him with Chris Holton company and, and see what they can do with him. And not to mention that new left field that hopefully keeps some of those home runs in compared to to Philadelphia. And I thought our old buddy friend of the show, Connor Newcomb had the best take I've seen so far on this, just on his locked on Orioles, Twitter, Twitter feed and podcast saying, just, you know, get him out of Philly between that infield defense and outfield defense, get him here, get him with the new wall, get him with Chris Holt and see if he can pitch around a four ERA. And if he can do that for what, 160 to 180 innings, I mean, that's pretty valuable as a back end of the rotation starter and it just provides depth yeah we have a lot of guys that could be as good as him but they're young they're still developing you don't know they could take a step back could get hurt so it never hurts to have depth especially quality veteran depth at that and i still think they're going to go out and get someone even better so do not freak out birdland 
Yeah, I think we missed Mike Elias's entire conversation while we've been recording. Uh, I've been trying to keep up on Twitter while also like keep track of this, but he said a lot. Uh, I think they've already met with eight pitchers. They've got multi-year offers out on pitchers, apparently. I mean, we're going to have to go back and read through all this when we, when we get done with this tonight, but it sounds promising. The Gibson sign is fine for me. I mean, you look at some of the other numbers too, like he has a five ERA, but – you know, the expected ERA, the FIP, the XFIP, the XFIP was below four, uh, his lowest in like three or four years or something like that. So, yeah, playing into the whole the defense situation and the wall. But I liked the quote. Was that Ken Rosenthal? I think somebody posted that. In the, I saw the screenshots from it. I don't subscribe to The Athletic. But um, it, Gibson had similar offers. Was that right? From other teams. And he chose the Orioles and he listed some of the reasons why. Like to me, I know I get you want better quality starting pitchers right now when the rumors are like Syndergaard and Gibson is like the guys like that's not super exciting. But for a guy like Gibson to say, I chose the Orioles purposely over other organizations for reasons A, B and C, like that's exciting. And that's going to open up the door for more guys, higher quality guys, I think, to come this way. So. I'll jump in here real quick before we go to Vivek. Um, Dan Connolly reported that Gibson had an identical offer, one year, $10 million from the Blue Jays as well, and chose the Orioles over Toronto. There you and go. the Pirates, I believe, had an identical offer as well. And, you know, just seems like a great guy as well. There's seems like a good clubhouse presence. He does stuff for charities. I'm sure a lot of players do that we don't hear about, but – I think I think I've even heard like Cespedes barbecue guys have a relationship with him of some kind and heard good things about him. So, yeah, I'm sure, you know, it's the Orioles. They seem really clubhouse chemistry is almost as important to them as uh, play on the field. So, yeah, I think it probably was just the right fit at the right price. And it's so cool that he wants to pitch to Adley more than he wants to pitch to Gabriel Moreno and uh, the other Blue Jays catcher who had a good year uh, last year that I can't remember his Alejandro, name. Alejandro uh, Kirk. Oh uh, yeah, and even Jensen. Yeah, they got some. Yes, guys. Jansen. Rui, you know they got a, they got some catchers over there. Yeah, I think um, at least the first thing about this is I think generally quality starts or uh, pitchers that again I know are that many uh, looking at the numbers. If you look at ERA, then it doesn't really give you the full perspective on Gibson, and I think. Um, one thing the Orioles did well, and maybe it was also an influence of the wall, was strike throwing, for example. Like, if you look at all of those heat maps, or not heat maps, rather, but if you go to Savant, you'll see an improved strike throwing rate from Kramer, from Bradish, from Watkins, from Lyles, from Wells. These are all elite strike throwers, right? So the Orioles clearly have a, a type when it comes to finding the free agent. And yes, Gibson himself is also a strike thrower. There was also the fact that he wasn't getting hit as hard. And again, him being a sinker baller, we also saw Kramer and Bradish mixing in more of that sinker as well into their pitch repertoire. So I know they coined Jordan Lyles to be dad. You know, Gibson might be dad 2.0, for example. But I am with you in the sense that, yes, the pitching market is definitely high right now when it comes to the price. And you could also maybe argue the fact that, well, you had Jordan Lyles also. You did a $1 million buyout or for $11 million, or did you want to do $10 million for Gibson? And I also do believe that Gibson does have the higher upside because I remember when he nine-inning shut out us against, 
It was John Means against John against Gibbons back in Texas last year in 2021, and the Orioles couldn't put up a single single run against Kyle Gibson. So he's definitely got this profile that got him to an All Star season, and I think for the Orioles to hand that contract out. They firmly do believe, like, this is adding more data to their wall. Like, look what we did with Jordan Lyles. What do you think we're going to do with Kyle Gibson? And again, if it if it also pays off, then this becomes even more of a destination in that, right? One year ago, Michael Elias literally listed down the reasons of why this wall and was taken a look at. And those three reasons that uh, Ken Rosenthal just brought up it, it worked at least in this sense. And yeah, I, I, I think, I don't know how the free agency is going to go. Maybe the Orioles themselves will have to give up 20 plus million a year for some of these other starters. If Rodon isn't the, the person that does come over, but I think there's also value in eating innings and for a team in 2021 that never ate innings and no one could get past the fourth inning. What Lyles did was also amazing, and Kibson still provides that value. It's 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 building in the whole redundancy. You can't solely rely on Kramer Bradish to repeat without any regression. So, yeah, smart move, yeah. I think. Yeah. Can we all this talk about the wall? I just I just think it's. I'm scared for all the right-handed hitters. Like we're <laughs> we're gonna talk to a power hitting prospect here uh, soon. He may not be the best to answer this question because I feel like you could put the wall at 600 feet and he say I'm gonna hit it over with ease. But like, what do these right-handed hitting prospects? Are they just like trade me? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> the way we talk up this wall for pitching is exciting. It's awesome. But I would love to hear some of these younger guys, right-handed hitters in the system. Your Connor Norbies. I'd love to hear their thoughts about all this. Like, what are their what are they thinking as the front office is talking about this? But this right center field ain't so bad. <laughs> it, maybe that's we saw Connor Norby do all that down there. Yeah. The <laughs> well, Vivek, we really appreciate you coming on tonight. Um so tell our listeners where they can find some of your work and some of your research other than our Patreon group, which they could join by becoming patrons for as little as $3 a month. So <laughs> something to consider as we approach the holidays. Yeah, absolutely. You can find me again on Twitter. I just shook you um, is my, is my Twitter handle, at least in that sense. And, that, and I think um, once again, I'll probably be posting either not tonight, maybe tonight or tomorrow just my personal finalist of the rule five draft. If anyone uh, missed it by any chance, um, I think it's a great exercise in learning about different players. Once again, that may be on the border, but are also valuable in a way to another team. Like just because you're not protected on a 40 man roster doesn't mean you also like, like you don't have value. And um, it's been a combination of many searches on fan graphs. So I really do give a lot of credit to fan graphs for having a database where I can search ground ball rates. I can search BABIB. Um, I can search for K's per nine innings. I can search at high A, double uh, A, triple A, and then even Twitter because there's so many different videos that are brought out there. And that's the only way I'm able to even talk about this guy has a high vertical arm slot or Kevin Kelly has a bit of a funky deceptive delivery that gives a different illusion. So I, this whole rule five process helps me learn as I'm uh, very fascinated with this sport in general, but um, I, I 
I also think it's something that the Orioles have absolutely done a great job of over these years um, of finding value in players that not necessarily uh, we're, we're seen that way. Yeah. See, listen to this guy. If you're listening to this, you can be part of the WhatsApp group and get this knowledge on a daily basis. He pays us. We should be paying him Dan Clark style to give us this no, information no, no. today. So uh, good stuff. And, oh, God. Uh, Dan Clark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did have – I meant to say this during the DraftKings read. So patrons, you didn't hear the DraftKings ad, but I did use some of that free money that I got for just being living in Maryland, placed a free $50 bet on Jacob DeGrom to sign with the Rangers at plus twelve or $2,500 odds. Boom, hit it. I can't get paid out until he throws a pitch for them. So it could be a couple of years knowing his injury history, but it's money in the bank and it was a free bet. So thank you, DraftKings. That was my prediction. I should have placed that bet as well. Hey, I'll give you 50 bucks. No. <laughs> oh, good win. Good win. Yeah, I can tell from the look on Nick's face that he really wishes to see you place that bet right now. Um, next week, we will be joined by Kobe Mayo. Uh, one of the top prospects in the Orioles farm system is going to be on to talk about his 2022 season and the things he's working on to get ready for 2023, which we all feel like is going to be a pretty big year for him. So you're going to want to check out that interview. That'll be next Monday night. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at BSL and the Birds for all the latest coverage on the Orioles, including the Rule 5 draft. And check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. I will have a recap up there after the Rule 5 draft takes place, noting who the Orioles gain and who they possibly lose. And while you're there, you can check that out as well as more Orioles coverage, Ravens coverage, college sports, and more. And hop on the message board to join in discussion with fellow readers of the site as well as contributors. Uh, thank you to Justin Armbruster and Vivek Sukla for joining us on tonight's episode. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden, and you've been listening to On The Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.